Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. On Monday, we found out a whole lot about Sanjeev Gupta the metal magnate who acquired dozens of factories, plants and mills around the world. Gupta's modus operandi is to buy up distressed industrial assets, typically steel, which are unloved, and then putting them all together under one big umbrella group known as the GFG Alliance. And how the financier Lex Greensill helped to supply the funds that allowed Gupta's global expansion. And this is where Lex Greensill comes in. He inserts himself into that relationship between the customer and Sanjeev Gupta, and he would finance the payment for that steal, giving Sanjeev Gupta the money up front. So now, the next link in the chain. What happened to Gupta that led to the collapse of Greensill? One of my contacts described Sanjeev Gupta and Greensill's relationship in a very interesting way. He said that Gupta had once said that his relationship with Greensill was mutually assured destruction. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Cameron and the Toxic Banker, Part 5. The Crash. On Monday, The Sunday Times' John Collingridge told us about Sanjeev Gupta, the man who came to save the British metal industries, and about how his expansion was financed by Lex Greensill, a failed financier facing questions about how he ran his company and what led to its collapse. Gupta's business grew like a giant plant, watered by Greensill's financing and fertilised by Gupta's own unusual business methods. But the metal magnet was also adept at playing on political fears around the loss of skilled industrial jobs. A key factor or facet in how Sanjeev Gupta grew his business was, as we discussed before, he would buy up distressed assets which needed love and attention and money. Taking us into the world of heavy industry and heavier politics is John Collingridge, Sunday Times Deputy Business Editor. And... When you have jobs which are at risk, the best place to go to is is governments and local politicians would support his requests for cash. There's some fascinating examples along the way of how Sanjeev Gupta would leverage governments for support, but crucially, how he would then, by a form of alchemy, turn that money into an enormous sum. I mean, he, he was able to leverage government subsidies and basically multiply them. 
So what you mean is you get a government subsidy, you persuade the government it's going to be a good thing if you give me a subsidy. You then turn around to the market and say, I've got great subsidies. Can I borrow a whole lot more? So there's a really good example of this, which was an aluminium smelter and two hydroelectric plants in the Scottish Highlands that he bought from Rio Tinto, the mining giant. He bought these in December 2016. What he was able to do in order to do this deal, he basically said to the Scottish government, we're not going to do this deal. We're not going to keep this aluminium smelter open or we're not going to give you a guarantee that we'll keep it open unless you give us some support. He persuaded the Scottish government to give a 25-year guarantee the power purchases from one of these hydroelectric dams. The power purchase agreement guaranteed the cost of the smelter's electricity for 25 years. But it also meant that if the smelter closed, the Scottish government committed to buying the electricity itself from the hydroelectric plant. The Scottish government hoped to safeguard the 300 quality jobs associated with the smelter. That's quite complicated, but it's, it's really crucial and, and it tells you a lot about how Sanjeev Gupta operated. You've got this aluminium smelter in the Scottish Highlands. I mean, it's not the first place you would put an aluminium smelter. It's in the foothills of Ben Nevis. It's been there for quite a long time. It uses electricity generated by these hydroelectric dams to smelt aluminium and to produce ingots of aluminium, which are used in things like the automotive industry. The Scottish government is desperate to keep this factory there. The Scottish government was persuaded to give Sanjeev Gupta a guarantee over the power purchases for the aluminium smelter for 25 years. So in effect, Gupta has managed to leverage the Scottish government for a bulletproof 25-year deal over the power purchases. Now, what Gupta then did, using Greensill, was sell that guarantee on. He was securitised. Greensill made the government guarantees into tradable financial instruments that could be used to raise capital, to borrow money, in other words. And the stuff we saw during the financial crisis, which got a lot of people into difficulty, was when you, you have an asset stream and then you package it up and you securitise it on. Gupta sold that, that guarantee on with bonds, which ultimately had a value of £575 million. I mean, he'd only paid £330 million for the whole package of Scottish assets. So you can see there's a kind of form of alchemy. Also, it's, it, there's nothing illegal about that, but he was able to multiply the value there by selling those on as government-backed bonds. So I magic, isn't it? I mean, you've got a guarantee that's supposedly worth something, but you're able to bundle it up and trade it on. Precisely. And it took a while for us to work out exactly what he was doing here. And what's the rationale in, in buying a, a tired aluminium smelter? in the Scottish Highlands. It only makes sense when you realise that he's able to securitise the cash flows from the government guarantee and flip that onto investors and raise cash against that. And he uses that money to go and do his next deal. But not only does he do that, he does it with the plaudits of the politicians in the place who are desperate to have someone run the aluminium smelter or other business. Nicola Sturgeon, and several of her deputies were very keen to get Sanjeev Gupta there, and they were very keen to hail him as the saviour of Scottish steel. This is a great day for the Highlands, and it's a great day for Scotland as a whole. This complex has exactly the strengths that we want to promote. It has a highly skilled and a dedicated... A really interesting aspect of part of that government guarantee was that Sanjeev Gupta agreed to build a factory next to the aluminium smelter. It was going to be a factory making aluminium wheels for cars and it was going to employ thousands of staff. It was going to be ultimately a £1 billion investment. 
that factory was meant to be up and running by last year. And as it stands today, it hasn't been built. Part of Sanjeev Gupta's allure to these people was that he wasn't only promising to save these jobs, but he was promising to create new ones. Now, does that mean that he also had quite close relationships with politicians in other parts of Britain as well? Like Lex Greensill, Sanjeev Gupta was expert at ingratiating himself with politicians. We've discussed not just politicians, but other senior public figures. One of the photos that we've used was Sanjeev Gupta with Prince Charles, future King of England. But it's been a wonderful moment, as far as I'm concerned, to fire up the furnace this afternoon. Prince Charles was persuaded to go to Rotherham to reignite one of his electric arc furnaces at a steelworks which he'd bought. It's so remarkable what Mr Gupta has achieved here in ensuring a future for this uh, steel mill. So there he is in order to try and get the subsidies upon which he then bases effectively the really significant financing of his empire. He gets close to politicians and because they want the jobs in their constituencies, etc., the politicians get close to him and also, you know, they get other things too sometimes. Is he still, now he's broke, trying to get more government loans? Absolutely. In the UK, he has been lobbying the government really hard for cash to keep his steelworks open. So remember, he's got about 3,000 jobs in the UK that depend on these steelworks, that are employed by these steelworks. The Gupta family group asked the British government to give £170 million of taxpayers' money. Uh, it's incumbent on uh, ministers and officials to be sure, have some degree of surety that that money will stay in the UK. The government has quite understandably been rather hesitant to give him that money. As far as I, I could understand, we didn't have those guarantees. It was a very opaque uh, structure uh, and there was a reluctance uh, to give uh, the, the group the money. And in fact, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has spoken openly about his concerns around the opacity of Gupta's empire. If you look into the Gupta family group, it's not the most uh, transparent organisation. That's not stopped him, though. He's been, as ever, quite adept at leveraging support from politicians. But what it seems the government is very keen to do is that if it is to support these businesses, it is only prepared to do so if they are not under his control. Because what the government is very concerned about is that 170 million could quite quickly slip through the net and disappear. Because what we've seen over the years is that vast sums of money by Greensill, by government guarantees and subsidies, has gone into Gupta's empire. But what has come out of the end hasn't matched what Sanjeev Gupta has said. And we just see a string of broken promises. I'm going to put something to you which may seem a bit harsh, but it's this. Is Gupta the kind of business you get if you are desperately trying to save industries that actually probably cannot be saved? What we, we see, say, with the steel industry in the UK is that it's gone through various layers and cycles of ownership to end up now as a very fragmented business. And, and perhaps the most challenged bits are held by people like Sanjeev Gupta. You know, it's gone through nationalisation. It's gone through vast mergers and acquisitions where global businesses have spent billions of pounds buying them up. It's been then fragmented and sold off piecemeal. 
really what you end up with at the end of that are subscale, tired, underinvested businesses where few people are prepared to invest and prepared to spend. They know that really in a world of decarbonization and net zero, if you want to really make a run, a success of these businesses, you need to pump billions of pounds into them. Sanjeev Gupta comes along and says, I'm going to do that. With your help, governments, I can create a happy future for these tired industries that everybody else has given up on. None of my steel plants would exist today if it had not been for our, our effort. And my workers support me completely. I will not give up on you. Under my watch, none of my steel plants will close, I promise. And that was consistently what he said as he went around the world. I'll rescue these businesses where others have failed. And while there haven't been massive redundancies in those businesses, he certainly hasn't invested the money that he said he would. And there's now a question about how long can they survive? It's a horrible question. What's the answer to that? I think it goes back to the government and what do governments want from their economies? Take the UK government. Does it want a steel industry? I don't think we have an answer on that. Here we've seen various governments of different shades try and create a sustainable future for the steel industry. But really, the steel industry in the UK is tiny in comparison to China, which now produces more than half the world's steel. So you've got to ask yourself, is it important as a government to have steel You know, in a crisis or at a time of war? The wind farms, the, the high-speed railway, the, the, the nuclear power stations, the, the beaching reversals at wedding, all those things, that were, they, they all involve steel. It would be crazy if we were not to use this post-Brexit moment, uh, to not to use the, the, the flexibility we have to, to buy British steel. So that's what we want to do. But really at the heart of it, it comes down to what government wants to do, what it's prepared to spend, whether it feel, thinks it's politically acceptable. And we're at a time now of industrial rebirth, rebalancing, Boris Johnson's levelling up phrase, you can see a way that that actually fits into the narrative. Saving the UK steel industry, saving businesses like Liberty Steel, actually fits with the times. Coming up, just what did happen to bring down Greensill Capital and what now for Sanjeev Gupta? But first, a request from a colleague. Hello, I'm Laura Pullman, New York correspondent for The Sunday Times. It's thanks to you I get to cover all things this unbridled city has to conjure up. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. At the end of the last episode, I'd just asked my guide through the Gupta part of the plot, the Sunday Times deputy business editor, John Collingridge, what finally went wrong in the Gupta-Greensill arrangement. The whole story started to unravel 
earlier this year when it emerged that Lex Greensill was about to have credit insurance pulled from underneath him. Trade credit insurance protects businesses against the risk that a company that has bought from them doesn't pay for its purchases. What was crucial with all of these loans that Greensill was making to Sanjeev Gupta is that they were packaged up with credit insurance, which meant that the ratings agencies could give them a nice, healthy investment-grade rating, that investors were happy to put money into Greensill's funds. But those credit insurers began to get cold feet. And what's really interesting is that one of the biggest credit insurers, Tokyo Marine, last year told Greensill, according to statements that Greensill has made in the court, that it planned to substantially cut or, or remove its credit insurance from Greensill in March this year. In fact, it gave it six months' notice. Greensill's loans to Gupta were about to have their insurance withdrawn, turning what had once been tradable assets into junk. But only in the early months of this year did we discover that that credit insurance was about to be withdrawn. In effect, then, that triggers a domino effect. You have all these questions coming out about the provenance of the invoices. You might recall in the last episode, John telling us the Financial Times had done some work investigating invoices from Gupta's company to companies who, it turned out, said that it had no business relationship with Gupta's GFG alliance. GFG has insisted those invoices were not records of actual trades, but part of a future or prospective receivables programme, so they were borrowing against potential future sales. German banking regulator starts to look into the invoices because Greensill happens to own a small German bank. And then what happens is that Greensill finds itself in a situation at the start of March where it has to call in the administrators. Credit Suisse withdrew its financial backing. Greensill couldn't make ends meet on a day-to-day basis. It realised it was insolvent and the whole Greensill party comes crashing down. And that has then a knock-on effect on Sanjeev Gupta, who is so reliant on the flow of cash from Greensill that he's in a day-to-day struggle for survival and for cash. John, can you explain how Gupta's way of doing business brought down Greensill? What was the mechanics of it? What's really interesting about the collapse of Greensill is that this has been going on. The relationship between Greensill and Gupta has been going on for a very long time. I admit, Mr Gupta... Back in 2015, I was actually introduced to him uh, by an executive at Eula Hermes. Greensill testified to MPs and said that they met in 2015. What you had there was a symbiotic relationship where Greensill would provide funds to Gupta. Gupta would greedily lap up those funds and use them to do deals. And as a result, Greensill could then showed to the world that he was quite a big business because he had all these invoices that were coming in that he could finance and could go to, to, to institutions like Japan's SoftBank and say, invest in us because we are revolutionising finance and we've got a lot of people who, who think we're good for it. The problem was that a lot of the assets which underpinned the, the money that Greensill was lending to Gupta appeared to be quite dodgy. And as we've discussed previously, some of those invoices have very dubious provenance. 
That's those invoices to companies who've never apparently bought anything from Gupta. What Greensill has been saying is that the withdrawal of credit insurance basically resulted in, in the collapse of his business. It's deeply regrettable that we were let down by our leading insurer, whose actions assured Greensill's collapse. And that, on a technical basis, is true. But you have to ask, why did those credit insurers withdraw the support to trigger the collapse of Greensill? It goes back to Gupta. Those credit insurers got spooked by the fact that Greensill was so exposed to this one big entity, GFG Alliance, Sanjeev Gupta, and by the sounds of things, they started asking questions about what are the assets that stand behind the money that you've lent to Gupta? What is the veracity of the invoices behind that? Tokyo Marine last year gets quite spooked. We've been writing stories about this for years. The Financial Times has been writing stories about this for years. Quite a few journalists have been picking up on the relationship between the two, the veracity of those invoices, the circular flow of trading, the, the close links to supposedly independent businesses, but who actually turn out to be very closely related. And as a trade credit insurer, you're asking yourself, should we be the lender of last resort or the backstop for Greensill's business if there are so many doubts around the assets which we're supporting? They then pull the plug as of last year, September last year, they notified Greensill that they were going to withdraw their support, their trade credit insurance. It's only in March this year that it all goes bust when that notice period expires and the trade credit is withdrawn. But basically, it's a domino effect caused by the scales falling from people's eyes when they realise that this big financial institution is underpinned by some pretty dubious assets. As you say, Greensill told the Treasury Select Committee when he said, I take full responsibility for any hardship being felt by our clients and their suppliers, and indeed investors in our programmes. And then he said, however, it's deeply regrettable that we were let down by our leading insurer whose actions assured Greensill's collapse. So what you're saying is, actually, that's incredibly disingenuous, because the reason they took that action was because they saw that nothing backed these assets and invoices. Or they were very concerned about the substance of those invoices. Did the trade credit insurers know that Gupta was effectively selling steel to himself and that steel was being invoice discounted by Lex Greensill? So effectively, Lex Greensill was lending money, which Tokyo Marine and others were insuring. Did they know that that was being used to, to finance circular trading? I very much doubt it. But they should have asked. And if they had known that, they would have been well within their rights to be very concerned. So what we saw last year and, and which came to a head this year when that insurance was withdrawn was people realising that actually the underpinnings behind these two businesses really didn't stack up to scrutiny. Now, the other thing that he was suggesting at the select committee was that insofar as he was involved with Gupta or Gupta was responsible for the collapse of Greensill Capital, he couldn't talk about it. With the greatest respect, um, I am not able to comment uh, about specific clients. What does that mean? It's a very convenient excuse. The problem for Greensill is that the moment he starts talking about his relationship with Sanjeev Gupta, it opens up ever more questions. Questions which, if he answers them truthfully, would, would reveal really serious concerns about his structure, 
structure of his business, the way it was financed. If Greensill had in that select committee answered questions about the circular flow of trading within Sanjeev Gupta's empire, and if he'd said he knew about that or that he didn't know about that, either of those answers would be a massive warning light. You have a duty to answer these questions because your business grew on the back of Gupta's business and your business has sunk on the back of Gupta's business. And am I right in summarising it as meaning that if Greensill were to answer openly, that if he said he did know, then that would mean he could conceivably be party to what might turn out to be a fraud. And if he said he didn't know, then he was certainly party to what might certainly be construed as neglect. Yeah, both of those things. They're, they're, they're both big risks for Greensill. I think we're still some way off hearing the full unvarnished truth from Lex Greensill. Let's move on now to the meaning of all this for Gupta and, if you like, the kind of backwash from all this. And the first question I want to try and answer is, all that money he got from Greensill, or from anywhere else, but mostly from Greensill, where's it gone? I don't think we've got answers for that, really. And that partly explains why the government's really so wary to put £170 million into a business, because it just doesn't know where it will end up. What we do know is that Sanjeev Gupta has acquired some very nice assets around the world. The FT reported recently that he owns a £42 million house in Belgravia in London, one of the most exclusive districts in London. He's also got a £3 million house in South Wales. He's got homes in Dubai and Australia. There are private jets. And we also discovered recently that he's got a very nice classic Austin Healey. But that doesn't go anywhere near explaining where all the money has gone. The sums we're talking about with Gupta are phenomenal. When Greensill filed for insolvency, in his court statement, he said that Greensill as a business was owed somewhere near $5 billion from Gupta. And very crucially to all of this and all the people who are owed money, Gupta has basically stopped paying money to Greensill. Just to be clear, when John mentions Gupta here, he means the GFG alliance. If you recall the strange arrangement whereby the money that was paid by customers went into Gupta's bank account and then was paid to Greensill, well, the money is flowing to Gupta, but is not being passed on to Greensill. And this is causing all manner of trouble. Because if you're a company like Credit Suisse, which has lent significant sums to Greensill, you're really concerned about how on earth am I going to get my money back and why am I not receiving the money which should flow to me? Credit Suisse is owed $1.2 billion. You've got Greensill Bank in Germany, which is owed significantly more than that. We haven't heard from Gupta why he has stopped paying this money, where it sits within his empire, but we do know that the bills are mounting up and tens of millions of pounds which should flow from Gupta to Greensill have stopped flowing and that is causing considerable consternation. John, what do we know about where Gupta is now and what he's doing? I mean, is he in that £42 million house in Belgravia or is he in the Australian pad or where is he? What we understand is he's in Dubai at the moment in a villa there and he's been holed up in Dubai since Greensill's implosion. Dubai, he says, is a very convenient place to be during this time because it works with the time zones. He can, he can speak to people via Zoom all around the world. 
He says he'll come back. I'm sure that there will be a string of politicians who would like to sit him in the hot seat and ask him questions about how he ran his business. You know, we have to take him on his word for it that he will come back when he's able to. And what has he said about the collapse of Greensill and the potential loss of all these jobs? Sanjeev Gupta is preying on people's best intentions when he says that it is desperately important that we save these jobs around the world. And he's right to that extent, you know. There's so many communities that rely on these thousands of jobs. His empire employs 35,000 people around the world and in places where they're the last show in town. He has blamed his challenges for funding on Greensill's collapse. We were basically in the process already of refinancing away from Greensill. We, have, we had identified the risk of being dependent on a single lender. And over the last year, year and a half, we've taken all the measures you would expect. But what I find fascinating is that neither of them are quite being open about where the blame lies for their respective troubles at the moment. Uh, and I do question why that is. I mean, back in the day, one of my contacts described Sanjay Gupta and Greensill's relationship in a very interesting way. He said that Gupta had once said that his relationship with Greensill was mutually assured destruction. I mean, it's only reported speech, but it's quite interesting. It suggests that they both knew exactly what each other was up to, and they both were complicit. And their growth was symbiotic, that as one grew, the other would grow. But if one fell, the other would fall. Now, how has he responded to your many articles about him? And one of my reasons for asking is, if you go down and see why this eventually failed, it failed because the credit insurers became aware of the fact that this was, to say the least, a dodgy set of enterprises. If they hadn't ever become aware, it could have gone on for a a longer period. And journalists have been quite important in making them aware that there was a problem. So I presume that Gupta... Well, you're not his best friend. Over the years, I have written a lot of critical articles about Sanjeev Gupta. I always give him right of reply. Throughout, Sanjeev Gupta has always been at pains to insist that he's done nothing wrong and that he runs his business in a perfectly legal, legitimate, fair way. I mean, for instance, around the friends of Sanjeev, he says there's nothing wrong with trading with people who you know. And yeah, that's a fair argument. But last week, news broke of an investigation into how Gupta runs his company. The Serious Fraud Office has announced it's investigating the Gupta Family Group Alliance, including its financing arrangements with the collapsed firm Greensill Capital. The SFO says the inquiry covers suspected fraud, fraudulent trading and money laundering. And it should be looking very closely at this, because really, we have seen somebody who go from nowhere in five years to build up an empire With 35,000 staff, $20 billion of turnover, 5,000 jobs in the UK, funded by some pretty dubious financing. And we've seen regulators just sit by and watch it happen. And it's not like we haven't been asking questions in the press for several years. John, you've been working this beat for a, a little while now. While you have, have you ever written about or come across anyone else who operates in quite the same way as Gupta has? I've never come across somebody who's built a business quite so rapidly. I never come across a businessman who uses quite so many financial tricks. And all the way through this, I would sense check this. I would go to businesses in the supply chain. I'd go to his customers. I'd talk to whistleblowers. I'd talk to staff. And I'd say, what am I missing here? 
is there a way that this could be a really sound strategy, a legitimate enterprise? You know, could Sanjeev Gupta's green steel ambition actually be the way to save the UK steel industry, the Australian steel industry, the European steel industry? Is there a way to make that work? But the problem was, every time I asked those questions, more questions were thrown up in my face. And I would get suppliers say, we're owed money by Sanjeev Gupta. We just can't get it off him. You call around another supplier and they say, oh, yeah, we're also owed money by Sanjeev. What's going on there? Or I'd speak to, speak to financiers, people who are adept at buying distressed businesses and turning them around. They go, oh, Sanjeev Gupta, yeah, he came knocking on our door quite recently and he asked us for 10 million quid. What's that all about? Again, really curious. Or I'd go into company's house and I'd delve through the accounts and I'd notice that company after company after company owned by Sanjeev Gupta had delayed the date on which it was due to file accounts. I thought, well, there's a consistent theme here. He keeps delaying the accounts. What can that be? It certainly doesn't help with disclosure. So every time I wanted to satisfy myself or I tried to satisfy myself that this was a legitimate enterprise with a legitimate strategy, I just came upon more questions, which to me pointed to a business which was funded very strangely and whose strategy appeared really threadbare and just did not stand up to scrutiny. Now, a question for you to answer as honestly as you can, John. What's this story been like to work on? It's funny, as as the years have gone by and as I've reported on this story, I've pulled at various threads and every thread that I pull on unravels a little bit and you realise that, crikey, that's not what it should be or that's not what he said it is. And as those years have gone by and as as my reporting has developed on this and others' reporting has developed on this, I've become increasingly convinced that this, when all is said and done and when the post-mortem is held, this will be one of the biggest industrial scandals of our time. You know, over the last year or so, as, as events have unfolded, it has been gratifying to see some of those questions answered but it's also been quite sad because at the back of my mind I'm constantly aware that there are thousands of jobs that rely on him people put their faith in him I always have those places like Newport like South Yorkshire in my mind because I know that the stories that I've been writing have made those facilities and and, and, their hope of survival have made things that bit trickier there and I think you have a responsibility as a reporter always to try and find out the real story, but you've also got to be kind of conscious of the different constituents who are affected by what you write. So there you have it. The story behind the industrial scandal that led to the financial scandal as Greensill Capital collapsed, that led to a political scandal as Greensill advisor David Cameron lobbied former colleagues for government-backed COVID loans that would help prop up Greensill Capital as the administrators circled. With investigations into political lobbying underway, next week we'll be taking an in-depth look at texts to Rishi, emails to Michael, David Cameron's frantic April afternoon, and what Lex Greensill and David Cameron said to the Treasury Select Committee. Mr Greensill, are you a fraudster? No, Ms McDonough, I am not. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Deputy Business Editor, John Collingridge. 
You can read more of John's reporting on this story at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, possibly an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Have a good weekend. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.